Welcome to NBA Talk with Isaac Wolf. I am your host, Isaac Wolf. The NFL draft happened last weekend. It was a huge success. I think it had like 55 million viewers, the most ever, which makes sense because literally everybody who was a part of it watched it on TV this year. Nobody was there live. But it was interesting. Joe Burrow went number one, and rightfully so. He had the greatest uh, individual college football season maybe ever. I'll be interested to see what happens with him because... I think he may have a good career, but I think it's also possible that he could be a one-year wonder. Now, I know I'm the unpopular opinion here, but here are the last seven number one overall picks that were QBs. Seven of the last ten draft uh, number one overall draft picks were QBs. Kyler Murray, who wasn't spectacular, but did win Offensive Rookie of the Year last season. Baker Mayfield, who's been average and disappointed this season with the Browns. Jared Goff, who went to the Super Bowl and got paid, but still isn't elite in my opinion. He gets paid like he's elite, but he certainly doesn't play like it. Jameis Winston, who just signed to be Drew Brees' backup in New Orleans, possibly even a, I don't even know, if they put Taysom Hill in front of him, that's possible on the depth chart. Andrew Luck, who retired, Cam Newton, who's without a job right now, and Sam Bradford. Recent history says he'll be a tiny bit above average, but who knows? According to everyone else, he'll probably be the treadbreaker. Chase Young went to the Redskins at number two. He's a no-brainer for defensive rookie of the year, in my opinion. Jeff Okuda to the Lions was a perfect fit. That's, I mean, that's exactly what Detroit needed, especially since they traded Darius Slay. Okay, I was surprised when the Giants took Andrew Thomas with the fourth overall pick. Like, yes, the pick makes sense. But if you're going to take a lineman, take Tristan Wirfs. He's the best... O-line prospect in the draft, in my opinion, and he slipped to the Buccaneers at 13. But it makes sense to draft a lineman. I mean, the other argument is you could draft Isaiah Simmons, who's probably going to be the runner-up for defensive rookie of the year this year. But it makes sense because you need to protect Daniel Jones, and you have to get a better offensive line for Saquon Barkley. Oh my gosh. This is someone who can probably be the best running back in the league in two, three, maybe even next season. Who knows? It depends on if Derrick Henry is a one-year wonder or not. Even he was only blew up for like half the se- second half of the season. But yes, you definitely need to make some. You need to get some better linemen because that Giants offensive line is terrible. The wide receivers in this draft are really good. Henry Ruggs went before Jerry Judy, which surprised some. But I actually think Ruggs will be better than Judy and Lamb. However, it may be tough having Derek Carr as his quarterback. C.D. Lamb has the best quarterback of the three, and frankly, Ruggs may have the worst. But, I mean, I still think Ruggs' speed is too much to handle. The Dolphins got their guy, Tua, who if and only if he stays healthy, I think he could be better than Joe Burrow. But staying healthy is a necessity in order for that to happen. Okay. The Packers trading up for Jordan Love, that was interesting. He's not going to take Rodgers' spot for the next two or three or maybe even four years, but he will learn from him, and they'll develop him into something. Some people, some scouts saw him going to the Chargers. Others saw him going in the fourth round to like the Raiders or something. He's got a lot of potential, but he also has a below-average floor. Here, however, is the best statistic to explain that pick. Aaron Rodgers now 
is the same age Brett Favre was when the Packers traded up to take Rodgers, and I think it was 2006? So maybe that's foreshadowing. However, Brett Favre, let me say this, Brett Favre said he thinks Aaron Rodgers will end his career elsewhere. We just saw Tom Brady do it. It's hard to believe, but it's possible because we we just saw Tom Brady do it. We literally just saw Tom Brady go to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That just sounds disgusting. Anyway, the Chiefs took Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, the running back from LSU, to finish off the first round. And I wondered why. Because DeAndre Swift, Jonathan Taylor, and J.K. Dobbins were all available. Clyde was the first running back taken off the board, which was kind of head-scratching. But they are the champs, so they can do what they want. They re-signed everybody and will probably run it back this year. By the way, in case you were wondering, Swift went to the Lions as the 35th overall pick, which was, I think, a really good pick by the Lions because they need a running back. And got the best one in the draft, I think. Jonathan Taylor was drafted by the Colts at 41. I believe they traded up for him. He'll be dominant, I think, as well, but he's not the pass catcher that Swift is. And then J.K. Dobbins went to the Ravens, who already have a fantastic running back. His name is Lamar Jackson. Anyway, there's my draft analysis for the first round and a half. Let's move on to the NBA, shall we? Here is an update on the hiatus. Originally, we heard from ESPN's Brian Windhorst that the NBA was, quote, angling towards canceling the season. He said, quote, the talks between the Players Union and the league this week, this was a couple weeks ago, I've talked to both sides of this issue, and it is clear that the NBA is angling to set up a deal that enables them to shut the season down. Now, they don't have to do that yet, and the way they're negotiating, they're leaving themselves an option either way, but they're not having talks about how to restart the league. They're having financial talks about what would happen if the season shuts down, and I think there's a significant amount of pessimism right now. So that kind of upset a lot of people hearing that news. In fact, Winhorst said he was scolded by both the league office and the union for being pessimistic. So, obviously, the players and the league officers are still holding out hope for a return. Because, I mean, obviously, the players want to save the season at all costs. We've heard multiple players say that. Then Sam Amick of The Athletic came out with a report that there is, quote, optimism around the league returning. That was about a week ago. And we've since heard Windhorse talk about how the NBA, if possible, plans to return from this. The league is looking at a 25-day return to basketball window that includes 11 days for individual workouts, with social distancing measures in place, of course and 14 days of team training camps before a return to games. And that makes sense. I mean, these players, while most are all trying to stay in shape, it's different from game speed and, you know, how they train and practice, like an organized team practice. Some of these guys don't even have hoops. I kid you not, CJ McCollum says he has not shot, like, since everything got shut down. He does not have, CJ McCollum does not have his own basketball hoop at his house. It's crazy. You'd be surprised how many players don't have their own hoop. So this two-week training camp thing sounds like a good idea to me, for the players especially. According to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, the NBA is reportedly allowing some teams to open their facilities, their practice facilities, to players beginning yesterday, May 1st. However, the teams that will be allowed to open the facilities will be the ones in cities and states where the stay-at-home orders aren't as strict. Facilities will be open for individual workouts only, Group workouts are still not allowed. According to CNBC's Jackie, or Jackie, Jabari Young, I was thinking Jackie Young from the Las Vegas Aces in the WNBA. I don't know why my mind went there, but according to CNBC's Jabari Young, 
Multiple team executives have grown, quote, frustrated with the lack of information from the NBA and are pressuring the league to cancel what's left of this season. LeBron James then responded on Twitter by saying, quote, saw some reports about execs and agents wanting to cancel the season. That's absolutely not true. Nobody I know saying anything like that. As soon as it's safe, we would like to finish our season. I'm ready and our team is ready. Nobody should be canceling anything. And, you know, of course, LeBron wants to salvage the rest of the season because he's 35. The Lakers are at the top of the West, and they were in very good shape to win it all this year. They were just hitting their stride right before the hiatus. The team was playing at a championship level. LeBron was playing at an MVP level. Remember, he had that weekend where he schooled Giannis and Kawhi in back-to-back games, both on the road, sort of. It was on the Clippers carpet in the Staples Center, so there's probably still more Laker fans anyway. Anyway, and he's not getting any younger. His title window is shrinking by the season, so you, you can feel a sense of urgency coming from him. Last night, a doing report came out, this one from Woj, the best in the business, saying, quote, across the league, an overwhelming majority of high-level officials remain encouraged and optimistic that, that basketball will return this season. So many conflicting reports, but I want to believe the good ones. And especially since this one came from Woj, I'm going to trust it. He also noted that Commissioner Adam Silver has, quote, repeatedly told teams he remains determined for the season to culminate with a champion. So that's good news for sure. We need basketball back. We're supposed to be in the second round of the playoffs right now, I think. I've been watching highlights of some of the more recent playoff games, and it just makes me sad because I miss playoff basketball. Oh, and by the way, the the NBA could play at Disney World when they come back. It's a plan that has been discussed, and the league is considering, quote, bubble scenarios that would bring teams to places like a site or sites to finish a season in a way that could minimize exposure risks. Sites that have been considered include Las Vegas, I believe MGM Resorts, like where the Summer League is held, contacted the NBA about potentially playing there. Los Angeles was another option, and now Walt Disney World. So that'd be fun. Why don't we put Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Donald, Daisy in the in the, in the crowd? They can be six seats apart. Look at that. Social distancing and fans. Sounds like a great idea. The Ball Brothers signed a deal with Jay-Z's Rock Nation. They will now be the primary agency looking over the three of them. LaMelo just declared for the draft a few days ago. Alonzo, we know, is with the Pelicans in New Orleans. And Leangelo, last I heard, signed a deal with the Thunder's G League team, the Oklahoma City Blue. I don't think he played games for them, though, because it was literally like right before the hiatus when I heard that. But yes, it seems that Big Baller brand was a failure and it's not coming back. But you never know. LaVar could bring it back the big baller way. Anyway, let's talk about The Last Dance. Episodes 1, 2, 3, and 4 came out the past two Sundays. 1 and 2, two Sundays ago, 3 and 4 last Sunday. I don't know what you all thought, but I thought it was really, really good. Apparently, here's how it all came together. Michael Jordan had control of the footage. All of it. And according to Ramona Shelburne, ESPN's Ramona Shelburne, Silver pitched the idea of the documentary to MJ by saying that the footage wouldn't be aired without Jordan's permission. The agreement, according to Silver, was that neither one of them could use the footage without the other's permission. It would be kept as a separate part of the library in Secaucus because this was a physical film. This was something from late 90s, so it it was actually a physical film. The producers would not have access to it. It would only be used with Michael's permission. The film's producer, Mike Tallinn, said they convinced... Uh, said that he convinced Jordan to let them use the footage during the Cavs NBA title parade in 2016. So when that came out, 
a bunch of LeBron lovers and Jordan haters bashed Jordan saying stuff like, oh, he was scared of what LeBron might do in the future. And, 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 and so he has to show his stuff now. He has to get that out now. And I don't know. I think that's coincidental. Because frankly, I don't think Jordan's, Jordan's scared of anybody ever. And it took four years to put together. He said yes in 2016. It's coming out in 2020. LeBron had four years to do something else. And guess what? <laughs> he did it. Anyway, the footage sat dormant for years and may not have ever come out if not for Talon, who heard about it from Jordan's longtime agent, David Falk. Talon got a meeting with Jordan, uh, scheduled a meeting with him in June 2016. Who knows? Maybe it was just scheduling conflicts that put the meeting at that time. So at that meeting, he presented MJ with a lookbook that showed his plan for the documentary and how it would be put together. After looking at the pitch, Jordan finally gave him the go-ahead, and that's how it all came about. As for the document itself, the first two episodes, it was fantastic. First, all, uh, all four actually were fantastic. I'm sorry if you haven't seen it yet. You probably have by now. If you haven't, because, you know, maybe you're caught up in e-learning or work or something, you might want to skip a little bit. I'll give you time to skip. Now, come back later. Okay, here we go. Episode one was a first, uh, at, at first, a quick recap of the Bulls five titles beforehand. And then Jerry Krause became the bad guy. He basically started what, uh, the downfall of the dynasty. He was jealous, really, of all the credit Jordan got from the media for winning those five previous titles. And Krause firmly believed that organizations won championships, not just players. That ticked MJ off and uh, really set the tone. For that last season, they were all together. Krause's relationship with Phil Jackson was a whole nother story. Krause said that even if they go 82-0, and you win all 82 games and lose literally zero times, Phil would still be fired. He did not want Phil there anymore. He did not like Phil at all. In fact, at his wedding, at Krause's wedding, he invited Tim Floyd, a head coaching candidate for the next season, and not Phil Jackson interesting anyway then they did a lot of recap of jordan's college years which was pretty cool it was a lot about how as jordan himself said he went from quote mike to michael jordan one of the funniest and most viral moments was when they labeled barack obama as former chicago resident that blew up twitter of course because he was at one point the president of the united states but that's cool just just put his connection to chicago on there the things I remember from episode two was a lot about Scottie Pippen and how he was underpaid and how Krauss would not give him a new deal. In 1991, Pippen signed a seven-year, $18 million deal. So it was set to expire after the 97-98 season. He took that deal at the time. This was before, really, he became a Hall of Fame superstar. He took that deal at the time to get the money while he could, no matter what. Just, like, for his family, to help his family out, which makes sense. $18 million back then is a lot he was however by 98 the 97 98 season the sixth highest played player the sixth highest paid player on the bulls and 122nd highest paid player in the league which is just absurd for a hall of famer then there was the injury where he could have been ready for the season but he didn't want to be and then by the time he was healthy he demanded a trade and that's where it ended he did end up coming back of course we know we all know that Episode 3 shifted the focus to Dennis Rodman, and a lot of people found his stuff interesting, including me. He went to a tiny college, was drafted 27th overall, third pick of the second round, because, you know, the NBA only had 24 teams by the, uh, when he was drafted. 
And, you know, he just made a name for himself by out-hustling literally everybody. I don't think there was any player that played harder than him. Then he got older, and in his post-Detroit days, he turned into the Dennis Rodman we all see and know now. San Antonio is really where he blew up personality-wise, and then he came to Chicago, which was really the best-case scenario for him. Phil Jackson understood Rodman to a degree and took him in, and Rodman produced. From 1995 to 1998, the three years he was there, the three title years, 95, 96, 96, 97, 97, 98, he led the league in rebounding each of those seasons. I think he, I think it was 15-plus all three seasons. I'd have to double-check that, though. But his rebound numbers were just insane. He might be the best ever, besides maybe Bill Russell or Will Chamberlain. But Will was so much taller than everybody. That's besides the point. Then there was the vacation he took to Vegas. And he went there longer than the team permitted him. He said, I'll be back in 48 hours. But everybody knew he wouldn't be. And lo and behold, he was not. Jordan actually found him in his hotel room and brought him back. Then they decided to do conditioning drills to get Dennis back into shape. Team conditioning drills. Remember, this is happening in the middle of the season. So they did an Indian run, and Jordan was upset because he had to do this when he didn't take a vacation, even though he wanted one. So, you know, he just kind of butchered the drill by making everybody jog. Yeah, but when Coach blew the whistle and Dennis ran it up to the front, it took the rest of the Bulls four laps. Jordan said it took the rest of the Bulls four laps to catch him. (laughs) That story showed me that while Dennis was crazy at times, a lot of times, he still had the discipline to flip the switch when it was needed most. He still had a focus on basketball to a degree. You know, when everybody else, including his coaches and teammates, <laughs> didn't think so. Episode 4 had stories of where Phil Jackson came from, which was interesting. He, to me, is the greatest coach of all time. And this documentary is further proof. Especially, you know, with the way he treated Rodman. In Dennis's own words, he saw him as a friend. It just shows you... That shows you Phil was different. Because most people, most players, most coaches... Probably all other coaches would never put up with Rodman's behavior. Ever. But, you know, Phil Jackson did. And it benefited both of them. The Bad Boys Pistons were in both episodes. In the third, it was the back-to-back years, 89 and 90, where the two played each other in the Eastern Conference Finals. And, you know, how they showed how the Pistons really shut down Jordan with the Jordan rules, which were on the wings... Push him towards the elbow, don't let him go baseline. Because if he goes to the elbow, there's more help defense there. And if he goes to the baseline, we've seen him go baseline all the time. He, you know, he dunks all, he dunks on a lot of people when he goes baseline. When he's on top, get him to go, get him to go to his left because that's his offhand. And then when he gets the ball in the low post, trap him from the top with two guys, three guys, maybe even four, whatever you need to do. And one of the most important things was to not let him get airborne because he could stay in the air for such a long time and finish however he needed to. So they really never let him get started and knocked him to the ground, typically on his way up or even on the floor sometimes. And it made sense. The strategy made sense. It kept Michael from dominating like he had been. And, you know, with the way those guys played, the way the bad boys played, it won them two championships. They knocked off Jordan twice and won the title in 89 and 90. Then in episode four, they showed what happened in '91 when the Pistons swept the, or excuse me, the Bulls swept the Pistons, and the Pistons walk off, walked off on them before the game was officially over, and everybody bashed them for it. But in my opinion, the media blew it up 
because they did it to Jordan. They did it to Jordan and the Bulls. And, you know, if they had done that to, like, Dominique Wilkins and the Hawks or Barkley and the Sixers, they would not be talking about it nearly as much, if at all, to this day. Because nobody remembered, nobody cared when the Celtics walked off on the Pistons. They did the exact same thing. And it was nowhere near as big of a deal as when Thomas and the Pistons walked off on the Bulls. I mean, that's, I don't know. That's just my opinion. I think it was blown out of proportion by the media because it was done to Jordan. They were all like, oh, how dare you walk off on Michael Jordan? How dare you walk off on his team? How dare you walk off on the Bulls? How dare you walk off on the best player in the league? How dare you disrespect him and his team like that? But all in all, it's still been a really great documentary. Probably one of my favorites of all time already, so. Aaron Gordon, oh my gosh. I hate talking about this, but I'm going to anyway. He's still not over the dunk contest controversy. This happened in February, folks, because he released a song called 9 Out of 10, clearly, clearly aimed at Wade and the fact that he lost. Wade clapped back on Twitter saying, quote, he should trademark 9 out of 10. Make some money off it. That's free advice that I won't charge him for it. You know, since I cost him a mil. Like, why is this even still a thing? It bothers me. Just get over it, Aaron. You shouldn't have won it anyway. And it's not like D-Wade was the only one to give you a nine. Scottie Pippen and Chadwick Boseman did too. Like, why do you have to go after Wade? (sighs) The two were on IG Live uh, either this morning or last night. And Gordon was like, there were two people who... There were only a couple people who thought D. Jones should have won. You and D. Jones. I'm like, just, just quit it. In other random news, because, you know, there's not a lot else to talk about right now. Besides the last dance and the hiatus. Fawnmaker's cousin is eligible for the draft. The NBA agreed to grant Mocker Maker eligibility for the draft because he was only two credits short of graduating high school in 2019. His original class... And somehow he switched to the 2020 class. I really don't know how how or why. He's considered to be the number 12 prospect in the 2020 class. He's, uh, you know, he's got a very similar game compared to his cousin. Seems to be a more complete prospect with the same type of play as Thon, who has been a disappointment since entering the league in 2016. A lot of people saw him as a future all-star, and even some had higher regards for him than that. His high school highlights were viral on YouTube, but this uh, thus far... Thon has averaged just four points and two rebounds per game. So we'll see what happens with this cousin, who is not expected to be a high draft pick because while he does have a ton of potential, his floor is so low, it puts him in second round territory draft wise. And while we're on the topic of the draft, the deadline for other uh, for underclassmen to put their name in the draft was earlier this week. And so here are the names of some this is not all i don't have time to go through all of them here's some of the bigger names of the underclassmen that have declared for the draft this is excluding international prospects like lamella ball that danny avida avija guy from israel or something like that he's supposed to be next big thing internationally but i am skeptical of all international prospects coming into the draft why because of darko milicic we don't need to evaluate on that right now, however. So, Precious Achua. Yes, his name is Precious Achua from Memphis. Cole Anthony from UNC. Vernon Carey, 
the ACC Freshman of the Year playing for Duke. Kofi Cokeburn from Illinois. He was the Big Ten Freshman of the Year. His teammate, Io Desunmu. Devin Devon Dotson from Kansas. Anthony Edwards from Georgia, who is the presumptive number one overall pick. However, if the Warriors land that top pick, they should not take him. They need to take Wiseman because they need a big guy. They already have Steph Clay and now Andrew Wiggins and even Draymond Green. So at this point, just fill in the center spot with the best big men in the draft. No, I don't think Obi Toppin's going to be that great. I think he's going to be the guy who dominates college basketball and just flops in the NBA. Anyway, Malachi, Malachi Flynn from San Diego State. Luca Garza from Iowa, the Big Ten Player of the Year. Josh Green from Arizona. Ashton Hagens from Kentucky. Tyrese Halliburton from Iowa State. Jay Huff from Virginia. Trey Jones, the ACC Player of the Year and Defensive Player of the Year for Duke. His brother, Tyus, is in the NBA right now playing for the Grizzlies. Kira Lewis Jr. from Alabama. Isaiah Livers from Michigan. Nico Mannion from Arizona. Kenyon Martin Jr. from IMG Academy. Tyrese Maxey from Kentucky. Mac McClung from Georgetown. Jaden McDaniels from Washington. EJ Montgomery from Kentucky. Zeke Naji, the Pac-12 Freshman of the Year, played at Arizona. Jordan Nwora from Louisville. Onyeka Okongwu from USC. He's projected to be a top-five pick. Isaac Okoro from Auburn. Daniel Oturu from Minnesota. Flip Petrusev from Gonzaga. Emmanuel Quickly from Kentucky, the SEC Player of the Year. Jalen Smith from Maryland. Cassius Stanley from Duke. Isaiah Stewart from Washington. Xavier Tillman from Michigan State. Obi Toppin from Dayton, National Player of the Year. AP wouldn't award all. He, he won all of it, it seemed. Caleb Weston from Ohio State. Khalil Whitney from Kentucky. So Kentucky's entire starting five has entered the draft. And I really don't see any of them carving out careers for themselves. We'll see. But James Wiseman from Memphis declared a long time ago. That's not even all of them. That's just some of the big names that declared. You can go to 247sports.com to find the whole list. But there are international prospects as well that have declared and you know keep in mind some of these guys are keeping their eligibility through this process of testing the waters i know xavier tillman and aaron henry both from michigan state i know they're not the only ones but i know those are the examples i can think of right now are the guys who are just testing the waters trying out the process which is gonna be weird because they just canceled the draft combine and you know all the stuff is virtual and it's just not the same so i (laughs) if i were them if I were sure, like not, eh, how do I say this? If I was like not a surefire first round pick or not like a surefire lottery pick, if I'm an underclassman or like surefire top 20 pick, I wouldn't go. Just go back to school. It's going to be whack. It's going to be weird. Your draft stock might f- like go all over the place. I really don't think this, this draft is going to be weird. It really is. So we'll see how that works out to wrap up today this day in nba history in 1968 bill russell won his first nba title as a player coach not his first nba title ever but his first title as a player coach of the celtics when they beat the lakers 124 to 109 in game six of the finals a player coach that's just weird to think about like there are very, very, very few guys I could see being taking the role as a player coach. There's just so much that goes into that. 
Back then, it was just a little bit more common, but even then, it was rare. You know, Chris Paul is the guy who comes to mind, somebody who could do that right now. I don't even know if I could think of think of another one. I mean, maybe LeBron, but that's just crazy. As a player coach, you lead your team to the finals. That's impressive. Not just to the finals, you win the finals. Happy birthday to Paul George, Tabo Cephalosha, and Jamal Wilkes, the old Lakers legend. We'll be back whenever (laughs) with another podcast.